from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. You can also like, share, subscribe. Everything helps. It just might help our little community grow. So the last announcement for this particular thing, but I am going to be at True Crime Fest in Rogers, Arkansas this Saturday, May 20th. So if you are interested in going, the website for tickets is allthelostgirls.org, all one word. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons, and keeping in with last week's theme of cults, I bring you another, the Synanon Cult. It was a U.S.-founded social organization created by Charles Edwin or Chuck Diedrich Sr. in 1958 in Santa Monica, California, United States. So into his backstory, Chuck was born on March 22, 1913 in Toledo, Ohio, to a basically upper-middle-class family. His father, Charles, had a harder time getting into the swing of family life. He drifted from insurance jobs and the like, and it was said he liked to play much more than he liked to work and provide. When he was four years old, his father, who was an alcoholic, died from injuries after an automobile accident. His mother, who had been raised in a convent, was a classical concert singer or pianist, some sources say one or the other, but she went by the name of Agnes Counts Diedrich. I found an old document from a high school school announcement that stated, quote, On Tuesday morning, January 19, 1920, the girls of DePaul High School and of many of the neighboring high schools had the pleasure of attending a recital in DePaul Auditorium given by the soloist Agnes Counts Diedrich. Madame Dietrich's voice was very sweet. Her songs were artistically rendered, but the Swallows and the Sandman were the ones that appealed to her audience, end quote. So her talents must have been recognized enough that her performances were sought after. She sang at this particular function when Chuck was six years old. This left the then 30-year-old Agnes to raise three boys as a widow. She brought them up, Chuck being the oldest child and his siblings, as devout Roman Catholics. Chuck later said, quote, I believed, literally, that I would go to hell if I didn't go to church on Sundays, end quote. When Chuck was eight years old, his youngest brother died from influenza, and it was said that the loss weighed quite heavily on him. 
Also, it was stated that after his father died, he felt like his mother expected him to take over the role of the man of the house, which is a lot of pressure for such a young child. According to the website paulmorantz.com, quote, As she was childlike and herself needing support, she took it from her oldest son, often waking him in the middle of the night from needed sleep for kitchen snacks and small talk. She had Chuck acting part husband, part brother, and part best friend. Chuck loved her and the favoritism dearly, but the role also brought burdens, duties, to help with his brothers, look after them, be the man of the house. He was called upon to bypass early childhood and take adult responsibilities. Chuck never really knew discipline. Corporal punishment was non-existent, something he would later blame for the plight of his youth. With her husband gone, Agnes spoiled Chuck greatly. Exalted in her eyes, he could do no wrong, and to him, neither could she. Their relationship, she told him, was special. He was special and would, of course, do special things. End quote. At 10 years old, Chuck got his first job to help contribute to the household income by selling newspapers. And then when he was 12, Agnes married a man that Chuck absolutely loathed. And let's remember that he had been the oldest kid and the only, you know, quote, man of the house for nearly eight years. The man's name was Archie, and he was apparently the town's most eligible bachelor. He had a small amount of wealth working as a construction engineer. And once Archie was settled in the house with Chuck and his one remaining younger brother, he began imposing very strict rules on the boys. And that, of course, went over like a lead balloon. So it was said that he went on a jealous rage because, though I didn't find anything showing any evidence that his mother and him had any level of an inappropriate relationship, Chuck still felt like Archie had stolen his woman, very Oedipus, right? Chuck started drinking and, quote, rebel rousing. This led to him having feelings of inadequacy, as if he had been so quickly replaced and interpreted this as his mother now having gone from unconditional love to conditional love. At 14, he picked up a copy of his stepfather's book, H.G. Wells's The Outline of History, read it, and, quote, became a militant atheist almost overnight. These are Chuck's words. The book was Wells's attempt at chronicling the history of the world from the origin of the earth to the First World War. Wells wrote that from Neolithic times, so 12,000 years to 10,000 years ago, by Wells's estimation, of course, right, this is Wells's opinion, quote, the history of mankind is a history of more or less blind endeavors to conceive a common purpose in relation to which all men may live happily and to create and develop a common stock of knowledge which may serve and illuminate that purpose. End quote. Some have said this book has some racist undertones, but Wells himself stated that, quote, Mankind, from the point of view of a biologist, is an animal species in a state of arrested differentiation and possible admixture. All races are more or less mixed, end quote. 
As for the claim that Western minds are superior, he states that upon examination, quote, this generalization dissolves into thin air, end quote. So Chuck began traveling around the countryside in his youth, boozing and womanizing. He considered himself a liberal Democrat as well. Again, according to paulmorantz.com, quote, he was in conflict with his early religious training, the taboos against premarital sex becoming at times solemn, remembering those who commented on his intelligence, his seemingly extraordinary capabilities, and sometimes saintly mannerisms, wondering if he was wasting it all. But by nightfall, he would drown his concerns, end quote. As Chuck went through high school, his drinking continued to increase, but he did manage to graduate and enroll at the University of Notre Dame. Only after a year and a half, he flunked out. Sources say he described his experience there as having, quote, mind-numbing boredom, and yet he went on to enroll at Toledo University in 1933 at 20 years old. He made it for a year before he quit. So he went to work for his stepfather, but that didn't last long. He then went to work in a Ford plant, but again, not for long. Chuck then got a job with Gulf Oil, where he was employed as a traveling sales representative and at various junior executive jobs over the next nine years. And this would be the time that he would shine and learn some, you know, very valuable things for what was soon to come. You see, he quickly picked up on the politics of big corporations about chains of command, as in who had the power and authority and who did not. He took notice of those on top who could be the boss over so many while holding business meetings during expensive lunches and playing rounds of golf. He was so successful at being a salesman that the company asked him to train new hires and supervise the sales force. At last, he felt important again. He began dating a divorced secretary from his work named Chilnessa and, under quite the scandal for the times, he married her. You see, he was Catholic and that simply was not done. But he did love her and after, they had a son, Charles Jr. But even though he had a good job that he was great at, a wife that he did love, and a son he was proud of, he still wasn't satisfied. He found himself running off to go drink with the boys. This turned into weekend excursions, and he had affairs. A family issue where his stepfather was unable to work, Chuck moved Archie, his mother, and his little brother and his brother's family all into one house and was happy to step back into that, you know, man-of-the-household role again. Archie died five years later, which was no great loss to Chuck. And then Chuck developed a serious ear infection that escalated to meningitis, and apparently this put him in a coma for a few days. But penicillin had been discovered, and this saved his life. But he did not make it through unscathed. He came to from his coma with the right side of his face paralyzed. He also couldn't hear anything out of his right ear. He had become vain from his station in life, so this devastated him. He drowned his sorrows in alcohol. 
His wife grew tired of his alcoholism, his womanizing, and his lack of interest in his son, and she kicked his ass out. The marriage was over, and then Gulf Oil let him go. So in 1944, the now 31-year-old Chuck headed west. He landed in Santa Monica, California, where he slept on the beach or in a small trailer at first. He worked a few odd jobs here and there, but eventually found full-time work in a tool factory. In 1948, he was newly married to a woman named Ruth, and they moved into a new house. He cared for Ruth, but it was said that he never really loved her. He was successful with his job and moved up to marketing and sales at the Douglas Aircraft Company. In 1950, Ruth gave birth to his daughter, Cecilia, that they called J.D., and finally, family life and family values seemed to sit well with Chuck. He was 37 years old at this point, and yet with his second attempt at a normal, predictable life, his drinking got out of hand yet again, and then he fell right back into his familiar patterns of not having much to do with his child and being intimidated by his intelligent and attractive wife. Now, you and I, if we step into her shoes, we can completely understand why she had to sort of take the lead in the situation at home to, you know, ensure the bills were paid, that their young daughter was taken care of, and so on, while he sat at the bars and drank himself into blackouts and was even arrested for public toxication. But through the lens of his perspective, he saw her as controlling. In 1952, Agnes, his mother, died, and he took his wife and daughter back to Toledo for the funeral. He did reunite with his son, who was basically grown at this point, and it was decided that he would move out west with his father, as he had been a bit of a disciplinary problem at home. But there was no further connection, and Charles Jr. promptly joined the army, and that was that. As far as I could find, there was no further contact between the two. By 1955, Ruth had kicked him out. A doctor had also told him his drinking was going to kill him, and he was on divorce number two. He went on such a bender that he nearly died from alcohol poisoning, and it was then that someone from Alcoholics Anonymous stuck with him and watched him effectively what I call kick the covers, so to speak, for days before he finally calmed into some level of stasis. That day, the fifth day, he went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting for the first time. And so, after a while, he got back on his feet. He got an apartment. He then turned his apartment in Ocean Park into a sort of sanctuary, first for alcoholics and soon for drug addicts as well. He said, quote, I say this with much humility as I am capable, which isn't very much, but when I sit down and start to talk, people start gathering, end quote. He said this in a 1980 deposition, but he went on to say, quote, it is inevitable. No matter where I do that, it just happens. I can't stop it, end quote. The ego, the glibness, do you hear it? So he formed an unquenchable love of reading philosophy and psychology. 
he felt pulled toward nonconformity and the ideas of utopia. Now, according to an article written for Cabinet Magazine, quote, In August 1957, the University of California was searching for therapeutic uses for the new wonder drug LSD. The researchers who had tried the drug had been amazed by the spiritual vistas it opened to them and the profound change in outlook it afforded. With this in mind, it was thought that alcoholics, especially those drawn from AA, could receive the greatest therapeutic benefits since they had already given themselves over to, quote, a higher power and would thus be more open to the beneficial effects of an outside force. In need of money, Chuck volunteered. And side note, I don't know if there's any validity to that. So if you are struggling with addiction and, you know, power be to you, please don't try doing LSD. I don't know that that's actually therapeutic. I just had to throw that out there. Anyway. And yet, while the other volunteers endured sensory enhancements and hallucinations, Wilchuck experienced none of these. Instead, he recalled having only, quote, feelings of omnipotence and omniscience. Chuck had finally found a higher power he could be comfortable accepting. It was, of course, himself. Soon the number of people wanting to join Chuck's after-hour sessions grew too big for his living quarters. This was largely due to an influx of drug addicts who had heard of his ability to keep people straight. For the addicts, he offered their only chance of salvation. AA didn't want them, and the state offered only hospitalization or prison. Sympathetic to their need, Chuck scraped together some cash and rented an old store on whose front he painted the letters TLC, short for Tender Loving Care. All of that from that article. Okay, so Chuck later said he is the one who coined the phrase, you know, quote, today is the first day of the rest of your life. But then the alcoholics began complaining about the addicts being in the group. Chuck came to the conclusion that the alcoholics had their own group. You know, they had Alcoholics Anonymous, but the addicts did not. So he, for the most part, abandoned the alcoholics and focused more on the addicts. He garnered a tremendous following quickly, then named the group the Synanon had it incorporated in 1958, all of this by the time he was 45 years old. So, Synanon's underlying original approach was simply that addicts were not adults, and it was futile to try to cure them with adult procedures. Synanon began as a two-year residential program, but then Chuck came to his own conclusion that its members could never actually graduate because a full recovery was impossible. Even the younger members began calling him Dad. The program was based on testimony of fellow group members about their tribulations and urges of relapsing and their journeys to recovery. The building he and his, I guess we could call patients, followers, were in, the building that they were in was condemned and demolished. So Chuck moved his group of now 65 or so members to the old National Guard Armory building on the beach in Santa Monica, which irritated the neighbors. 
Ten days after moving, he and a few of his followers were arrested for treating drug addicts without a license and, quote, operating a hospital in a residential zone, end quote. This is according to the Los Angeles Times. He stated, quote, apparently we started saving lives on the wrong side of town, end quote. This, of course, had him spending 25 days in jail. So, you know, what activities were they doing? Well, one was called The Game. According to the article written for Cabinet Magazine, the game consisted of a dozen or so addicts sitting in a circle. One player would start talking about the appearance or behavior of another, picking out their defects and criticizing their character. But as soon as the subject of the attack tried to defend him or herself, other players would join in the barrage, unleashing a no-holds-barred verbal onslaught. Vulgarity was encouraged. Chuck would say, talk dirty and live clean. And so the other members would accuse the defendant of real and imagined crimes, of being selfish, unthinking, and being a no-good, ugly, diseased, cocksucker who was too weak to go straight and was too much of an asshole, junkie, crybaby, motherfucker to admit it. Wow. Faced with this unrelenting group assault, the recipient would eventually have little choice but to admit their wrongdoing and promise to mend their ways. Then the group would turn to the next person and begin all over again, but then the game turned into a 72-hour version and was admitted by Chuck later to actually be brainwashing. The game was eventually used to pressure people to submit to his will, abort pregnancies, undergo vasectomies, and commit violence. But outside of the world, and we'll get to some more of the violence and so on here pretty soon, but the outside world actually celebrated Chuck's success. And thus, according to Los Angeles Magazine, began the media's decade-long enchantment with Synanon. Early on, the Los Angeles Times ran a two-part feature on the group. The Los Angeles Mirror published a four-part series, and then a 14-page photo spread in Life magazine labeling Synanon as, quote, a tunnel back into the human race. That was followed by a glowing write-up in Time magazine, which repeated Chuck's unconfirmed claim that 80% of addicts treated by Synanon stayed clean. He told the New York Times, quote, Crime is stupid. Delinquency is stupid, and the use of narcotics is stupid. What Synanon is dealing with is an addiction to stupidity. End quote. Jesus. But keep in mind, back in that day, there really wasn't much of any real organized rehab facilities. One example is a mother who saw something on TV about Synanon in Brooklyn, New York, and felt that they might be able to help her 20-year-old son with his serious addiction. She sent him there, and without the help of any medical attention, he sort of white-knuckled his way through withdrawals, survived, and later said this program saved his life. And then it evolved into every Saturday night, sending on through these huge parties open to the public with a jazz band all for recruitment, of course. And then a drug-addicted sex worker by the name of Betty made her way to the group and was fascinated by what she saw. 
It completely drew her in. She later said in an interview, quote, I was sick as a dog. I was going through the usual withdrawal symptoms and everything, but I was just fascinated. I had never been around addicts and such a strange motley lot, you know, of people. It was a weird scene. I got caught up in it. End quote. She would relapse a number of times, but she always returned. She caught the attention of Chuck, and they eventually married. So this would be marriage number three. And then, U.S. Senator Thomas J. Dodd caught wind of the group, observed, and then declared that Synanon could, quote, lead the way in the future to an effective treatment for not only drug addicts, but also criminals and juvenile delinquents, end quote. And boy, what a poke at Chuck's ego that would have been. Social scientists flocked to see for themselves, and even Hollywood came out with the film Synanon in 1965. To say Chuck's group was a wild success in its early years is an understatement. But after 10 years, it was said that the group had grown to well over 1,100 members, it was also receiving around $2.5 million in donations a year. Los Angeles Magazine stated that Synanon had grown to have $7 million worth of real estate in Santa Monica, West L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, Tamales Bay, Reno, Detroit, New York City, and Puerto Rico, owned a number of gas stations, and ran a $1 million a year specialty advertising business that sold pens and office supplies bearing the Synanon logo. Salesmen implored Fortune 500 companies to, quote, buy from Synanon and save a life, end quote. As more and more members joined, it became less about addiction and more about being a community, Children were being reared within the communal society and educated through the ideas behind Synanon. So Synanon had its own teachers and developed its own educational system. One member talked about how he sold his car. He moved into the eight-story Synanon building located in downtown Oakland and proceeded to shave his head, which was a practice that had actually begun as a punishment and a way to haze newcomers but was becoming more or less the norm. So now we are seeing the beginning of the individual being being forced into conformity by losing their hair, their own unique identity. And with all of this money that he was bringing in, taxation became an issue. So Chuck declared that Synanon was a tax-exempt religious organization, a.k.a. the Church of Synanon. This really reminds me of Scientology. But in all reality, his legal problems continued. Children who had been assigned to Synanon began running away in a kind of underground railroad, if you will, kind of situation to help them return to their parents. Beatings of Synanon's opponents and its ex-members they called splitties began and would occur in Synanon basements. A state grand jury in Marin County issued a report in 1978 that attacked Synanon for the very strong evidence of its child abuse and also for the monetary profits that flowed directly to Chuck. The grand jury report also criticized the governmental authorities involved for their lack of oversight, although it stopped short of directly interceding in the Synanon situation. 
and then Synanon rebranded itself in the 1970s from a drug treatment program to a psychotherapy program and started attracting middle-class people through the Synanon game. But people were intrigued, you know, they were leaving their therapist's office and ran to this program and membership continued to rise. And then Chuck started wearing overalls of all things. But this trend spread like wildfire until the attire was all but mandatory. So here is yet another step to strip the person of their own identity, a very common tactic of any cult. It is said that gradually, Synanon was involved in several criminal activities. Initially, Synanon did not support violence. Of course, Chuck later changed the rules to allow for violence in order to maintain control. Much of the violence by Synanon had been carried out by a group within Synanon called the, quote, Imperial Marines. Again, sounds very Scientology. Over 80 violent acts were committed, including mass beatings that hospitalized teenagers and ranchers who were beaten in front of their own families. People who left the organization were at risk of physical violence. One ex-member was beaten so severely that his skull was fractured and he subsequently fell into a coma with a near-fatal case of bacterial meningitis. In 1978, a new segment on the controversies surrounding Synanon, that it stirred up the followers of the now cult, we can call it a cult now, and several executives of the NBC network and its corporate chairman allegedly received hundreds of threats from Synanon members and supporters. October 10, 1978, Two Synanon members placed a de-rattled rattlesnake in the mailbox of attorney Paul Morantz of Pacific Palisades, California. Morantz had successfully sued on behalf of people who were being held against their will by Synanon. The snake did bite him, and he was hospitalized for six days. This incident, along with the press coverage, prompted an investigation by the police and government into Synanon, and this was sort of the beginning of the downturn. After a complaint, a search of the ranch owned by the group unearthed a recorded speech by Chuck where he said, quote, We're not going to mess with the old-time, turn-the-other-cheek religious postures. Our religious posture is, don't mess with us. You can get killed dead, literally dead. These are real threats. They are draining life's blood from us and expecting us to play by their silly rules. We will make the rules. I see nothing frightening about it. I am quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and next break his wife's legs and threaten to cut their child's arm off. That is the end of that lawyer. That is a very satisfactory, humane way of transmitting information. I really do want an ear and a glass of alcohol on my desk. End quote. Wow, what the fuck. During the investigations, researchers also came across multiple lawsuits and arrests against Synanon members. And these were not the only completely outlandish threats Chuck would make to people who worked for various media outlets. Now we know that sex was rampant in Synanon's early days, as it is with most all cults. 
But now members had to ask a Synanon elder, air quotes, for permission to date and were forced to follow a strict and celibate courting ritual. Glut raids were routinely run on residents' rooms to confiscate excessive personal possessions. And Chuck and his elders would instigate arbitrary new rules, such as the 24-hour day, in which half of Synanon would go to work at night, while the other half worked during the day. A Synanon police force patrolled the nearby streets looking for members who might be breaking the rules. So, as I mentioned earlier, Synanon had what they developed and called the Imperial Marines. That also developed its own type of martial arts. They called it Sindhu. And by 1978, amassed an arsenal of hundreds of guns. But if anything, Synanon was increasing the crime rate. According to Los Angeles Magazine, in 1975, three members admitted to assaulting a Marin County rancher. Chuck hailed them as heroes. Another rancher was pistol-whipped. In Santa Monica, Sinanites beat up two black couples who had parked their car at a Sinanon apartment building. Nonviolence, Chuck said at a press conference, quote, was just a position. We can change positions anytime we want to, end quote. Chuck also began voicing endless monologues broadcast to Synanon facilities over The Wire, a low-power FM radio station. That led to him telling members they should stop having kids altogether, saying, quote, I think children are a very bad investment. All the dummies, you, 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 all of you, you all just sit there. And as this organization gets richer and fatter and more fun to be in and more powerful, you love that. But you're all alike. You're all alike. You sit there, mum, when I make these speeches. End quote. It was revealed, too, how Chuck saw himself. Quote, I have done exactly like the rest of the guys that run the world. I could have run a state, a country, a city. It doesn't make any difference. I'm one of those guys. I know that magic. End quote. He said that having an abortion was nothing more than, quote, squeezing a boil. <sighs> and many men were basically forced to have vasectomies. Men that refused would be belittled and bullied incessantly until they gave in. And then in the very next room, there would be a doctor already prepped and ready to begin the surgery. There would be no time to reconsider. So when Chuck's wife Betty died in 1977, the now 64-year-old Chuck basically announced he was immediately ready to remarry. Now, of the six women who applied, if you can believe that, for the opening, Chuck chose a woman named Jenny Shoren, a 31-year-old teacher at one of Synanon's schools. Shortly thereafter, Chuck decided that marriage would no longer be permanent. Couples were told to split up and form new, three-year-long, quote, love matches. Within days, 230 couples had filed for divorce. And yet, the violence continued to escalate. To this day, there is still some disagreement over whether or not Chuck ordered the violence perpetrated by Synanon members 
or merely stoked their rage, but three declarations written in 1983 by three Synanon officials in exchange for immunity from prosecution, stated that Imperial Marines prepared a hit list of Synanon, quote, enemies that was approved by Chuck's assistant, a man by the name of Walter Lubell. The hit list included former Synanon President Jack Hurst, whose guard dog was found hanged, might I add, Phil Ritter and Paul Morantz, whom I have gotten a lot of source information from. They allege that Security Chief Art Warfield had directed Imperial Marine Joe Musico, a Vietnam vet, to find a hitman to kill Morantz. Now, when he reported the job would cost $10,000, Synanon executives deemed the price too high and ordered the Marines to take care of Morantz themselves. This was all around the rattleless rattlesnake. And yet during this time, Chuck had a series of strokes. While his associates went to jail over the snake incident and outright threats of violence, Chuck received probation because his doctors said that due to his ill health, he would most likely die in prison. As a condition of probation, he was banned from taking part in managing Synanon on any level. So without its rather charismatic leader, the group began to flounder. And then the IRS revoked its tax-exempt status and ordered Synanon to pay $17 million. This, of course, bankrupted Synanon, which formally dissolved in 1991, though I have read that there is still sort of an offshoot of this group surviving in Germany, but don't hold me to that. Chuck died in 1997, a few weeks shy of his 84th birthday. Now, does this group qualify as a cult? Well, let's see. Steve Eichel is sort of my go-to when it comes to cult characteristics, and according to his site, drsteveichel.com, the checklist of characteristics when it comes to cults is as follows. If a group that you belong to has many of the following criteria to a significant degree, you have cause for concern. So these are the ones on his website. The group is led by one or a few individuals, charismatic, determined, and domineering check. The leader or leaders are self-appointed and claim to have a special mission in life. Frequently, that mission is messianic or apocalyptic. Leaders answer to no higher authority, such as an oversight board. They are sole interpreters of doctrine and policy, which may change frequently and whimsically. Check. The group centers its veneration on the leader or leaders directly rather than on God or a higher political power or a science or a whatever. Check. The group structure is hierarchical and authoritarian. Rarely will you find an open election in a cult. Check. The group tends to be totalitarian with elaborate rules and rituals that occupy large parts of every day. To break a rule or ignore a ritual carries the danger of expulsion from the group. I think that this is a check, but if you also try to leave, you get beat. So there's that. The group usually has two or more sets of ethics, one for the leadership, another for the membership, 
one for the outsiders, another for the insiders, a relaxed set for the recruiting purposes, and a much more demanding set for the committed member. I think that's a check. The group usually presents itself as innovative and exclusive, even elitist. Definitely check. And the group has two main purposes, recruiting new members and fund raising. It's unlikely to support or even encourage legitimate charity work except as a front for recruitment. I'm not entirely sure about that, but I think so. So the group is focused on a living leader to whom members seem to display excessively zealous, unquestioning commitment. Check. The group is preoccupied with bringing in new members. I'm not entirely sure, but that sounds accurate to me. The group is preoccupied with making money. Questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Definitely check. Mind-numbing techniques such as meditation, chanting, speaking in tongues, denunciation sessions, debilitating work routines are used to suppress doubts about the group and its leader. Check. The leadership dictates sometimes in great detail how members should think, act, and feel. For example, members must get permission from leaders to date, change jobs, get married, leaders may prescribe what types of clothes to wear, where to live, how to discipline children, and so forth. That's like a quadruple check. Uh, the group is elitist, claiming a special exalted status for itself, its leader, and members like the leader might be considered the messiah or an avatar, the group and or the leader has a special mission to save humanity. So the special mission to save humanity kind of thing at least has a three-quarter check. The group has a polarized us-versus-them mentality, which causes conflict with the wider society. That is definitely a check. The group leader is not accountable to any authorities. Check. The group teaches or implies that its supposedly exalted ends justify the means that members would have to be considered unethical before joining the group. This is an example they're saying is collecting money for bogus charities. I'm thinking that was probably the case. The leadership induces guilt feelings in members in order to control them. Check. Members' subservience to the group causes them to cut ties with family and friends and to give up personal goals and activities that were interests before joining the group. I think that this is a check. It's at least a half check. Members are expected to devote inordinate amounts of time to the group. Well, that's a given. Members are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. I, I don't know that that was an outright rule, but... We could give it like a quarter check, okay? So going through all of those points, I would personally classify this as a cult. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment. DM me on Instagram. I love to hear from you guys. I like having the dialogue. Or join the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page. I'm very active on that. We can openly communicate and have discussions there or share true crimey memes or cats. Cats are always appreciated. Don't forget I'm going to be in Arkansas this weekend, May 20th. I'm trying to think of anything else I wanted to remind you. Um, I guess that's it, other than I love you guys, and I want you to have a good rest of your week. As always, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and 
whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 